My name is John, a seasoned park ranger assigned to mentor a rookie named Ethan on his first assignment. We ventured deep into the remote backcountry of the vast national park, eager to pass on my knowledge and experience. Little did I know, our routine patrol would quickly become a harrowing fight for survival. We stumbled upon a series of gruesome animal killings that defied any logical explanation. The carcasses were left in a manner that suggested no known predator was responsible. As we investigated further, we discovered the existence of a pack of supernatural predators that could blend into the shadows, moving silently and unseen. These creatures were unlike anything we'd ever encountered, and their mere presence sent a chill down our spines. Ethan and I knew we had to overcome our fears and rely on our skills to outwit these elusive predators. Our priority was to alert the public to the danger lurking within the park's borders, but we knew we needed to act fast. We devised a plan to lure the creatures into a trap, using our knowledge of the terrain and animal behavior to our advantage. Unfortunately, our plan did not go as smoothly as we had hoped. As we managed to ensnare the predators in our carefully laid traps, Ethan became separated from me. I heard him cry out, and my heart sank as I realized that my young protege had fallen victim to the creatures we were trying to stop. Despite the pain and guilt that weighed heavily upon me, I pressed on, capturing the remaining predators. As I stood there, mourning the loss of Ethan, a government helicopter suddenly arrived. Before I could react, a group of armed agents emerged and locked me in taking the captured predators with them. I demanded answers, but my pleas fell on deaf ears. The helicopter took off, leaving me with a sinking feeling that I would never learn the truth about the creatures or the government's involvement. After that day, no one ever saw or heard from me again. My disappearance became one of the many mysteries that haunted the park, a chilling reminder of the unknown dangers lurking in the shadows. It was the weekend before Thanksgiving and Lee was camping in the Ozark National Forest in Arkansas, trying to get a deer for Thanksgiving in the freezer. It was an annual tradition for Lee to venture into the same woods he hunted with his dad every year before he died. These woods were where his dad taught him to leave no trace, to respect the sacred place, and to always give thanks when it gave up its gifts. Going without his dad this year didn't feel right, but his wife encouraged him to keep the tradition. Lee finished up his sandwich, cleaned up camp, grabbed his gear, and started walking into the woods. The leaves crunched under his feet, and the sweet smell of forest decay and moist dirt was in the air. Reaching his favorite clearing alongside a creek didn't take too long. He set his pack down and started checking the game trails leading to the clearing from the forest, deciding which way he would go next. Once he made up his mind, he returned to his pack, pulled out an apple, 
and left it on the rock in the center of the clearing before heading down the game trail. He remembered the first time he went hunting with his dad and saw him leave a pile of apples. It was always Arkansas black apples from their tree back at home. His dad told him that when the forest gives you a gift, it's only fitting to leave a gift as well. It felt mystical as a child, but now that Lee was a grown man, he believed that apples were like his dad's lucky pair of hunting underwear. His dad was very successful hunting deer and always seemed to show up near him. So he decided to keep the tradition, at least the apple part. His dad took his lucky underwear to the grave. Lee started chuckling as he walked along the creek when he recalled the horrified look on the mortician's face when he handed her the lucky underwear they were patched with many pieces of fabric over the years, often flowery remnants of his sister's dresses. His dad may have been a mountain man, but he was buried with roses on his rear end. His chuckle had turned to a laugh when suddenly a red fox ran past him and a rock landed on the ground in front of him rolling forward on the ground. He gripped his rifle tighter as he turned around to confront whoever threw the rock. He couldn't see anyone nearby, so he lifted his rifle to his shoulder and started looking in the direction the rock had come from through his scope. Near the entrance to the clearing, partially behind the large oak, was a large figure. A little scared but mostly angry Lee yelled hey at the figure. The figure stepped out from behind the tree and Lee realized what he was looking at. In his sight was a creature standing on two legs covered in shaggy brown hair. It was clearly a male and had broad massive shoulders that led to a head with tiny neck in between. He could see the creature's eyes blinking through the scope. He was sure he wasn't looking at a human, but he still asks, why'd you do that? The creature bellowed a strange roar louder and different than any noise he had ever heard in these woods before. Lee's hands were shaking as he watched the creature through his scope. The thought came to his mind, this is your chance. He tried to be a good provider for his family, but there was usually more month left than paycheck. If he shot this creature, he was guaranteed a payday. There had even been a TV show offering a huge bounty for just a little proof. A body would be worth more. They could replace his wife's death trap of a car college savings for the kids, and fewer trips to the thrift store. Just one shot, and they would finally have their heads above water. His father's reminders about only taking what you need whisper in his mind. Lee took a deep breath, whispered, I need this aim center mass, and pulled the trigger. The creature grunted and screamed as it grabbed at its side. He could see the blood dripping between its fingers as it turned and ran. The creature wasn't running very fast, but it maintained its distance from Lee. It crossed over a river and climbed up the limestone cliff running along the river, climbing into the mouth of a bluff shelter. Lee knew he would be at a disadvantage if he tried to climb up to the bluff shelter. 
but he couldn't see into the shelter from his location on the ground. He backed up and watched the creature in the shelter through his scope. It was too far away to take a second shot, so he stayed there observing the creature's actions. Lee could see the creature leaning against the side of the shelter, taking deep breaths. If the creature died there, the body would be safe. He had been watching for about ten minutes through his scope when he noticed a gray figure at the creature's side. He could see gray arms moving as the wounded creature was gesturing toward the wound area. The gray figure put its hand down on the wound and the creature screamed in pain. Lee felt a twinge of guilt, feeling sorry for the pain the wounded creature was suffering. Oh God, why didn't I get a clean shot, he thought. The wounded creature sat down and put its back against the shelter wall. From the opposite side of the shelter, he saw another dark figure approach the wounded creature and fall to its knees. It rested its hands on the wounded one's legs. Its lips move as if talking. It stood back up and turned around as a small figure ran up to it. It leaned down to pick up the smaller figure and Lee could see pendulous breasts hanging. He realized this was a female, a mother. Lee lowered his gun trembling with the realization of what he had done. I shot the father. I may have killed this little one's father. Guilt washed over him. He would never do anything illegal to help his family financially, but he couldn't shake the feeling that what he had done was akin to murder. This mother was picking up her child just like his wife picked up theirs. This mother appeared concerned about the wounded creature, just like his wife would be. If they had no shaggy hair, someone might even confuse them with humans. I'm a murderer. What was I thinking? He dropped to his knees. Lee looked back up through his scope and saw the wounded one standing up again. A mass of leaves where the wound was. The mother was cradling the young one's head on her shoulder. Both were looking down at him. Emotions overwhelmed him as tears ran down his face. He knew his dad was looking down on him, too. He set his gun down and put his face in his hands. He was no better of a man than a poacher. He cried until the tears wouldn't come anymore, then stood up. When he looked up at the bluff shelter, there was nothing there. He lifted his rifle back up and looked through the scope. Nothing. He scanned the rest of the area along the limestone cliff and river, but the family was gone. He lowered his gun and turned away walking back the way he came. He knew he had made one of the biggest mistakes of his life, but he also couldn't shake the idea that this was just a bad dream. He walked back to the clearing where he had left the apple on the rock. Even from the clearing, he could see the white flesh exposed against the deep red skin of the apple. A single bite was missing, and there was a trail of blood near the rock. He walked out of the woods sick, knowing that what had happened was real. Lee would return to these woods every year unarmed with a pile of Arkansas black apples and an apology. Wildlife would dart through the clearing past him, 
but he refused to hunt at this location anymore. He had violated the trust his dad had built, and he wanted to build it back for his own kids. Lee didn't know for certain if his dad knew about these creatures existing, but Lee had a feeling he did. His dad's patchwork flowery lucky underwear would always be a mystery, but he finally understood the importance of his dad's gift of apples. Me and a buddy chose some national forest in Oregon specifically for how remote it was. About a year prior, a family became lost, and the father was never found, although mother and child lived to tell the tale. Anyway, we set up camp around 4 p.m. after getting pretty deep into the woods on a mountain accessed by logging roads, maybe about 100-200 yards from where we parked, near a lake. Without much else to do, we started a fire and cracked some beers as the sun went down. Then pickup trucks started going through the woods, slowing down when they saw our campfire. We got curious and stupid via the beers and went deeper into the woods, seemed like a hell of a party was going on. Then we stumbled into a clearing where maybe 15-20 dudes were hanging around a bonfire next to a mossy run-down camper trailer. One had a pistol on his hip, another was just chillin' with a shotgun. We're like, oh shit, at first, but someone approaches us and acts neighborly and invites us to have a beer, so it seemed okay. They were joking around mostly, some talking about drugs, coke, meth, but there were some older dudes that seemed pretty tense. As this happened, Four-five dudes who seemed to be standing sentry at the camper, which didn't look like it had been moved in a long time, went inside for a few minutes. When they came back out, they said we were faggots and saw us making out. Pretty quickly, I got up to head back to our site, but my slower, drunker buddy took a few punches. Then he made it out and started following and we were sprinting through the forest in the darkness, just hoping to get back to our site by spotting the glowing embers of our burnt-out fire, the whole time with gun-toters in tow. We found our site, and with pretty much everything in the tent, we pulled the stakes to toss it in the trunk of our car, when we hear an enraged scream only about fifty yards from us kill the faggots. So we were like effet dropped the tent and gear without even saying a word to each other and sprinted in the direction of the car. We peeled out and thought we were good, but about 30 seconds later some headlights come up from behind us and I'm like, F, that's the truck that shotgun dude was chillin' at. So now we're being pursued by crazy gun-toting rednecks with a superior vehicle in unfamiliar forest on unmaintained logging roads in the dark, and the only thing we can do is speed up. I remember looking at the speedometer as we approached a washed-out hairpin turn, and it was moving from 45 to 50 miles per hour, and the truck was tailing us pretty close, like by only a couple feet, and I was pretty sure that we were gonna slide off the cliff and die. 
Somehow my drunk ass buddy managed to power slide that turn and get some distance between us and the tweakers and we eventually made it to a paved two lane, at which point the truck pulled off. We put it together later that the camper was a meth lab, nothing else it really could have been, deep in the forest with armed guards and shit. But yeah, resulted in a drunken high-speed night chase on unfamiliar logging roads, and we nearly slid off the side of a mountain. One August, I ventured into the dense woods near the Three Sisters Wilderness with a rather unique friend of mine, Roy. You see, Roy claims to be a psychic who can communicate with Bigfoot. Yes, Bigfoot. He lives his life in a way that echoes the habits of this elusive creature and has had what he calls great success with it. His house, he once told me, was brimming with documentation. He didn't care for publicity or approval. He knew Bigfoot was real, and that was all that mattered to him. As we ventured deeper into the forest, Roy began to speak out loud to the air around us. He claimed he was communicating with Bigfoot, saying, He's a friend of mine. You can trust him. He's not going to hurt you, referring to my presence. For fifteen minutes, Roy spoke, and with each pause, a series of chirps answered him from the dense foliage. Chirp, chirp. It echoed through the silent woods. According to Roy, the chirping sounded as though it were originating from some sort of cavity. While I stood there, trying to wrap my mind around this peculiar conversation, Roy mentioned his friend Everett. Everett apparently serenades Bigfoot with songs on his guitar. I found myself wondering what sort of tunes Bigfoot prefers. Once we returned to our old-style ranch pickup, Roy was astounded by the plethora of footprints surrounding it. His only response to my obvious shock was a smug, I told you they were here. Despite his claim of communication, Roy never saw Bigfoot that day. We explored further and discovered a large area where the trees were entirely stripped of their bark and leaves. It was an eerie sight. Roy didn't know what kind of trees they were, but he theorized that Bigfoot had stripped and eaten all the bark and leaves. As evidence, he showed me a patch of young cedar trees near what he called Bigfoot Mountain, where the bark had been similarly stripped away. Even though I never witnessed Bigfoot myself, that peculiar adventure with Roy in the woods was something I will never forget. It made me question what I thought I knew about the world and opened my mind to the mysteries that might still be hiding within the depths of our forests. I had always thought of Texas as a place of vast open spaces, friendly faces, and a whole lot of barbecue. It was the Lone Star State, after all, with its proud history and cowboy heritage. But everything I had ever known about Texas was about to be turned on its head. It started as a whisper, a rumor circulating among the residents of my small Texan town. 
At first, I dismissed it as nothing more than local gossip, the kind of talk that often filled the air in a place where everyone knew everyone else's business. But as the days passed, the whispers grew louder, and the fear in people's eyes became impossible to ignore. It was on a hot summer afternoon when I first heard the dreaded phrase that had become the centerpiece of every conversation in town, the sightings. No one dared speak of it explicitly, as if uttering its name would make it all the more real. But the fear was palpable, a dark cloud that hung over our community. The sightings had reportedly begun deep in the heart of the vast Texan wilderness, where few ventured. Hunters, campers, and even seasoned outdoorsmen had returned with stories that chilled the bravest of hearts. They spoke of strange, unearthly creatures lurking in the shadows, creatures that defied explanation and sent shivers down their spines. I couldn't ignore it any longer. The mystery had seeped into every corner of our town, and curiosity gnawed at me like a relentless itch. I decided to investigate, to uncover the truth behind the whispered horrors that haunted our Texan home. With camera in hand, I ventured into the dense woods, guided only by the stories and rumors that had permeated our community. The forest felt different, as if it held its breath in anticipation of what I might discover. My steps were cautious, every rustle of leaves setting my heart racing. As I delved deeper into the wilderness, I couldn't shake the feeling that I was being watched. The branches of the towering trees seemed to close in on me, their leaves casting eerie shadows on the ground. I pushed forward, determined to confront whatever lay at the heart of this mystery. And then I saw it. Amidst the trees, a creature unlike anything I had ever imagined stood before me. It was tall, impossibly so, with elongated limbs that seemed to reach for the heavens. Its body was a grotesque amalgamation of shapes and colors, a nightmarish collage of the unknown. Its eyes, if you could call them that, glowed with an unnatural light that pierced through the darkness. Fear coursed through my veins as I lifted my camera, my hands trembling. I had to capture this unearthly being to prove to myself and the world that it existed. But as I raised the camera to my eye, the creature vanished, as if it had never been there at all. I stood alone in the silent woods, my heart pounding, and the weight of the unknown pressing upon me. I had seen what the town had feared, what had driven them to whisper in hushed tones and avoid the wilderness. The truth was far more terrifying than any rumor or legend. I returned to town with no photographic evidence, only the chilling certainty that something inexplicable dwelled in the heart of Texas. The fear had a name now, an image, and it had become a part of our shared consciousness. The sightings would continue to haunt us, a dark secret lurking in the Lone Star State, forever changing the way we saw our beloved Texas. Living just outside Appalachia, life is peaceful. 
steeped in the serene beauty of nature. One day, my friend and I decided to take a walk back to my house through the dense forest. The air was cool and crisp, a typical day in our quiet corner of the world. Our conversation was interrupted by a strange noise. A long, scraping sound echoed through the trees. My first thought was that it was a woodpecker, but the sound didn't quite fit. It was too harsh, too rhythmic. Intrigued, we decided to investigate. As we ventured deeper into the forest, an unsettling feeling washed over us. It was like stepping into a shadow, a sudden drop in temperature that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. We exchanged a look, both of us feeling the same eerie sensation. The forest, once filled with the sounds of chirping birds and rustling leaves, seemed to hold its breath. The scraping sound continued louder now. But there was something else, a feeling of being watched. It was as if the trees had eyes, scrutinizing our every move. We decided to turn back, the unease growing with each step. As we walked back to my house, the feeling persisted. We kept looking over our shoulders, half expecting to see something or someone lurking in the shadows. But there was nothing, just the dense forest and the ominous silence. Then, as abruptly as it had started, the scraping noise stopped, but the feeling of being watched remained. We quickened our pace, eager to leave the forest behind. We finally reached my house, a wave of relief washing over us. We were safe, but the questions lingered. What was that noise? Why did we feel watched? Was it just our imagination playing tricks on us? Or was there something more? In the safety of my home, we pondered over our experience. Was it a prankster, a wild animal, or something else entirely? We couldn't say for sure. As the day gave way to night, we decided to let it go. Maybe it was just one of those unexplainable things, a mystery that would remain unsolved. But one thing was certain. We would never forget that strange, eerie feeling in the heart of the forest. We would always wonder what was out there, watching us from the shadows. I live in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in northeast Georgia. It's a beautiful area with hundreds of miles of national forest, some great state parks, and a ton of fantastic camping places. Unfortunately, my hometown is also relatively poor. While there are some out-of-town residents from Atlanta and other places, a lot of people where I live are really poor. I do freelance work as a technical writer, so I can do most of my work online. If I didn't have that going for me, I'd have to move somewhere else. It's just one of those small towns that will rob you of your ability to accomplish anything in life, if you stay there too long without anything else going for you, at least. Excluding a handful of doctors and lawyers and Georgia Power Company employees, the only employment in the area is at Walmart, fast food, and a couple of grocery stores. To the east of my town, 
there's a massive national forest. It's loaded with great camping sites and lots of relatively unused hiking trails. I really enjoy hiking on them with my dog, but it can be a bit of an unnerving experience sometimes. It's about a 10-mile drive from town, and there's no cell phone service or homes for miles. In the past, there have been a lot of vehicle break-ins at the trailheads. The gravel parking lots at some of them glitter with bits of broken glass from what I'm guessing were car windows. Sometimes there are really shifty people hanging around these trailheads or just driving around on the forest service roads. These are really rough roads, and you'll see these beat-up $500 cars just barreling along roads meant for a 4x4. Some of the people you see in the cars look like the guy that got crushed by an ATM in Breaking Bad. All that being said, it's still a great place to camp. However, you just have to be careful. A few years ago, two of my friends and I decided to go play paintball in the National Forest, probably not legal, I know. We decided to turn the paintball expedition into a camping trip so we could play the next morning too. After a pretty uneventful day of shooting paintballs at each other, we drive a couple of miles to one of the more popular camping spots. Unfortunately, a church group or something had taken up all the spots in the area. This was really the only camping spot that we were familiar with, and it was getting pretty late. We decide to keep on looking, so we drive for about an hour further and further into the woods. By this time, it's getting a bit dark, and we're getting a bit worried about finding a spot. We all had GPS on our smartphones, but none of us had any service. We turn off onto an unfamiliar road that isn't in very good shape. In fact, it looks like the forest service rangers used a backhoe to block off the road with a mound of dirt. A broken metal barrier lay in the woods nearby. That said, it looked like four by four vehicles had been going over the mound, so it was pretty worn down. Our F-150 had pretty high clearance, so we decided to go over the mound. There was an old gravel road on the other side, and the road was pretty much clear of debris. We drove a few miles down this road and came across an opening next to a small creek. There were some blue tarps hanging over a plywood table nailed to a tree, which seemed kind of odd. That said, it was pretty much dark at this point, and we didn't want to keep driving around all night looking for a camping spot. We left the truck light running, and we set up the tent. As we were setting up the tent, I started to notice that there was a lot of trash in the woods surrounding the site. I see a green bottle laying on the ground. I take a look at the label and see that it's a bottle of home and garden insecticide. I was really tired at the time, and I just thought that someone had been dumping their home garbage out here. None of us thought it was weird that someone would be dumping garbage in an area that is more than an hour from the nearest home. We set up camp, had some beers, and made chili from scratch. By this time, it was probably around 11 p.m. As we're eating, we notice a faint glow from the other side of a nearby hill. 
At first, we thought it was moonlight filtering its way through the trees. However, the angles didn't make sense. It didn't seem to be a bright light, and it wasn't moving. It was kind of like that glow you see over a bright city. We couldn't see the light source itself, though. Since there were no other access roads in the area, we decided it wasn't other campers. The hill was about a quarter mile from our campsite, so we decided to go investigate. Under normal circumstances, I know I wouldn't have done so. However, we all had a few rum and cokes in our stomachs, and two of us, Jacob and I, decide to take a look. My other friend, Isaac, decides to stay behind to pop some popcorn over the fire. We start walking towards the light source, and the situation gets even stranger. All the trees in the area have their bark knocked off in a circle around their trunks. We thought it could have been the work of a beaver that lived in the creek, but it seems strange that a beaver would go around all these trees and just knock the bark off in a circle. Jacob and I start talking about the ghost beaver in pretty loud voices, probably due to our drunkenness. As we're almost to the top of the hill, Jacob tripped and yelled, Oh shit! A few seconds after he yelled, the light, whatever it was, went out. We look at each other and decide that maybe we don't need to see what that light was after all. We walk back in silence and keep looking back every few seconds. We decide to turn off our flashlight and just use the moonlight to get back to the campsite. When we get a couple of hundred feet from the campsite, I can see my other friend Isaac walking around the campsite. He was wearing a hooded coat that I hadn't seen him wearing before. For some reason, he's carrying his paintball gun around in his hand. That seemed a little odd, we said to each other. The fire had started to die down, so we couldn't see our campsite very well. At this point, we'd probably been gone for almost an hour. From the distance, it looked like Isaac was looking for something. He kept walking around the site and was peering in the tent. When we were almost back to the campsite, we saw Isaac walk up the road we came in on. We figured that he was going to go use the bathroom and didn't want to wander through the woods like us. When we got back, we sat next to the fire and waited for Isaac to come back. All of a sudden, we see him lurch out of the tent. He stumbles a few feet and vomits. After we left, he had a few more rum and cokes, he mumbles. We ask him why he kept wandering around the campsite with the paintball gun and he gets a strange look on his face. They're locked up in the cab of the truck. Did you unlock it? We go and check the truck, enter the door code, and see all our paintball equipment just as we left it before. The keys to the truck were still hidden in a magnetic fob underneath. I get a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. Isaac, what were you doing after we left, I ask. Um, I was watching a movie on my phone, then I fell asleep, I guess. But, you were walking around with your paintball gun, right? Did you just change jackets? Isaac said he had been in the tent since we left, and that he had been wearing the same unhooded fleece all night. 
Someone had been walking around our campsite, and it wasn't Isaac. At this point, all of us are way too drunk to drive, but we decide to go ahead and pack up and go back to my house for the night. We don't bother packing up the tent. We just fold it down with the sleeping bags and everything in it. We jump in the F-150 and I start to drive out. When we get to the dirt hump, we see something gray blocking our path. The metal barrier that had been lying in the woods earlier is now back on its stand, right on top of the hump earlier. By this point, all of us have sobered up to the situation. No one wants to get out of the car to try to move the barrier. I had a metal guard on the front of the F-150, so I drive forward slowly, tapping the metal barrier with the front of my truck. It falls right off, it must have just have been balanced on top, and we drive over it slowly. We were terrified that it would pop one of the truck's tires as we drove over it, but it didn't. As we drive down the road, we see a vehicle following us with its lights off. It's probably 1,000 feet behind us, but we keep catching glimpses of it as the moon reflects light off it. I start to drive as fast as I can on the Forest Service road, and the other vehicle keeps pace. It doesn't get any closer, though it stays just one or two turns behind us. We can only see it when the road straightens out. After about 45 minutes of speeding along gravel roads, we make it back to the main paved road. I start to drive everyone back to my house, but I decide to go a different way just to be safe. I didn't get pulled over for a DUI, luckily. Camping can be fun, but very rural camping can be dangerous. I've driven past that metal barrier since that time, but it's always been in place. I would never go down that road again, though.